Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 99. People, when they think plyos, uh, Eric, they're thinking, oh, wow, like, let me do a box jump. What about just jump and land? Like with two, like like pogos, let's do a pogo jump. That, that's plyos. You have, to, you have to crawl before you sprint. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome, everybody, to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, your host, and today we have Matt Ibrahim with us. He is the co-owner of TD Athletes Edge in Boston, Massachusetts. Matt recently spoke at the NSCA Coaches Conference in January. Welcome. Eric, thank you for having me on. I, uh, I look forward to diving in here, so thanks again for the opportunity. Awesome, man. I really enjoyed your talk at Coaches, uh, talking about deceleration and landing skills. I want to dive into some of that. But before we get going, uh, just give you a chance to tell your story. How'd you get into the field? Well, thank you for asking. This is going to be a long, inundated uh, diatribe, if you will. Get your popcorn, get ready. I think like most strength coaches, you know, Growing up, you're playing high school sports and you just enjoy being in and around the gym or physical activity and exercise and training. And, and that's that's what I did as well. Uh, leaving high school, I had absolutely zero idea what I wanted to do as a profession. I just knew I loved being around exercise, training, the weight room, sports, athletics, stuff like that, and working with people to help them, you know, get stronger and whatnot. So went to UMass Boston, a really long story short, took six years to get my undergraduate degree. Um, I went in a, as a, in the College of Liberal Arts, had no clue that they had exercise science department. I ended up failing by collegiate terms, uh, 13 courses, got put on academic probation for my last semester, had a read a letter of appeal to be able to finish my last semester and uh, get my undergraduate degree in exercise and health sciences. So I graduated with a 2.96. I took way too many classes. It took, it took way too long, but it was a really good learning lesson. And so Eric, throughout that six years, I ended up starting to get into the exercise science department about a year or two in after kind of waking up and knocking my head saying, oh, wow, they have, you know, opening my eyes, so to speak. And I wasn't really a good student by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't try hard. I didn't put the effort in. I was lazy from an, uh, an academic standpoint. And I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I took anatomy, anatomy one and two. I took them twice each. And I just didn't care as much. But I loved, I loved training and, you know, reading the the latest T-Nation article or NSCA article or podcast or anything on men's fitness or whatever. I mean, you get your hands on it. You're young. You want to learn. As luck would have it, I somehow, I don't know how I did, but I landed uh, an internship at Mike Boyle's in the fall of 2011. Um, one of the clients there was in front of my father's and so on and so forth. And, and I got a connection there. And at the time, um, Anthony Miranda was there and Nicole Rodriguez, which, which, who I believe spoke at coaches as well, was there. And uh, I will just say that I had my rear end handed to me because I was green. I was a blank white canvas and uh, you know, they put me in my place and, and I think for good reason. And so that was an excellent learning experience for me. I was around people like Kevin Carr, Mike Boyle, Brennan Rarick, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Anthony Miranda, Nicole Rodriguez, all these really great coaches in the field. Now, um, you know, at times I think, you know, Ben Bruno had come to visit, uh, Greg Cook had come to visit people like that. And so, I was very green. And so from there, I wanted to go to physical therapy school. Ended up becoming a PT rehab aide while still personal training, strength coaching, going to class, kind of doing a little bit of everything. Not that much different than any other coach in the field. You kind of you just make it work. You figure out different avenues of training people, getting them healthy, getting them strong and realizing that, well, you have to work with people in every age group, not just the select 
a quote unquote pro athletes that you want to work with as a, as a high school or college kid. Uh, everyone, all humans are athletes essentially. And so I had a lot of experiences in a, in a variety of gyms, training facilities, PT clinics, rehab centers, sports medicine facilities, sport performance. So I was kind of building this human movement and performance skill set and trying to apply for doctor of PT schools. Uh, over, a, over a three year span, I applied to five different schools and I got uh, declined a total of 15 times. So five times each, each of those three years, the same uh, local Boston schools. You being a New England guy as well, you know that, you know, you want to stay in, in New England, stay in the area. So uh, that was fire for me. That wasn't, uh, you know, discouraging. It was fire for me. And so I've been fortunate enough to, at this point, have been invited to speak as, as a presenter at three of those universities. So I look at it like, hey, this wasn't for me, but I, I kind of found a, a workaround. So after not getting into DPT schools, I knew I loved coaching. It's my, it's my greatest joy helping people. And I still wanted to have a hand in rehabilitation and sports medicine to assist in that performance process. And so I got my license in massage therapy. I still have it. I don't use it anymore, but there was a, a one-year span where I was half coaching, half treating, and working in concert with the PTs and the physios in a performance and rehabilitation realm. And so I was coaching, treating, doing soft tissue work, strength coaching. And I mean, it was fun, but I realized I'm like, all right, well, I have too much energy to just kind of sit on a table and, and do some soft tissue or modalities. And I know that I can be, I can have much more of a profound impact on someone's life as a coach and as an educator, as a teacher, as a guide. And, and I said, you know what? Let me kind of hang it up from an, a licensed massage therapy standpoint. I still pay for the dang license, but you never know. And I, I said, let me just go back to being all in at coaching. And so throughout this whole time, I was building up a little bit of a social media presence. And I was posting about articles and, pot and um, you know, exercise content, education, just trying to make it simple, digestible, and immediately applicable for end users, being the client or people around the world. And so, um, you know, we were teaching some workshops uh, around the States, and uh, some of them were... Um, you know, accredited through NSCA for CEUs and we were having some fun. And then from there, I said, you know what? I tried to get into, you know, terminal degree program of DPT. Let me still kind of continue that path. And I didn't do too well in the undergrad. As I said, I got a 2.96 and I said, you know what? I want to be able to write this ship. So I ended up uh, going to Rocky Mountain University and getting my master's in uh, human and sport performance. I ended up with a 3.8. And so that made me feel a little better about myself in terms of my academic path. And I was fortunate enough at that timeline, this is about a year ago, to be able to have an opportunity to give back and pay it forward to students. So I'd imagine I'm not the only one who failed as, a, as an up and coming strength coach or exercise science-based student. And I say, you know what? I wanna be able to pay it forward. And if I have an opportunity to pay it forward and give back, I want to. So at the time I'd done about 20 to 25, just various guest lectures, just at different, you know, Springfield, uh, UMass Boston, UMass Lowell, Salem State, Endicott College, some of them online to uh, places around the world. And I said, you know what? I'd like to maybe turn this into a, a, a position, like an adjunct professor. So I landed a, an adjunct professor job at Endicott College, so locally in Beverly, Mass, near the gym, as well as uh, not so local, uh, our, maybe our mutual friend, I think, uh, Victor Kaiser. He's the director over at Maryville University as an adjunct professor with them. So I still have those roles now. And I consider myself very fortunate to be able to have an avenue an outlet, so to speak, to directly impact the current student body. And it's something I, I'm very, I feel very passionate about because I want to be able to help the, someone who would have been my, you know, someone who's potentially in my shoes or was in my shoes at that point. So I'm now uh, about a third of the way through, uh, through my PhD or doc, doctoral program at Rocky Mountain University. And 
Uh, I am no, by no means a research guy or a sciencey guy, but I figure, well, you got to give it a shot and, and see how far I can take this ship. And so I have a 378 now, and I don't mean to bring up the GPA to say, look at me. I, I mean to bring it up to say, hey, look, like you can turn things around and write the ship if you actually apply yourself. And that's that's my story, just being able to understand that you have to apply yourself and put effort forth if you want to make change. Man, it's awesome to hear that message. You know, I think a lot of times we, as strength coaches, we have something that drives us into this profession. Maybe it might be an injury or a setback or just an uh, uh, impactful relationship with a, with a coach that we have, and we want to give that back. But just hearing the message, and I, and I love it, it's uh, own your failures. I mean, you, you just come right out, and I, I've read this in your bio and heard you say this before, where, you know, you, you just come right out with it. You know, I didn't do that great as an undergrad. Um, it set me back. You know, there were some opportunities that maybe I missed out on, but I'm not going to stop. And that is extremely encouraging and, and powerful for, for young coaches, because I think this is a field that, you know, over my career over, and I think generations before can say this as well as we have been striving for more, we continue to strive for more. Mm -hmm. Um, we seek to improve the professionalism of our field. Academic preparation and education ties into that as well. So, man, that was that was awesome. I, I really am happy you shared that with us. Um, I want to ask you kind of um, you had this interest in physical therapy uh, and, and, and not just working on the performance side, but on the health side. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of experiences did you have when you were a, uh, a PT aid or when you were pre-physical therapy that have uh, benefited you as a strength coach? And what do you think of that track um, as a preparation for performance professionals? I think the biggest thing is uh, knowing your lane as a professional. I think, and this is not to speak ill of anyone, but I think a lot of times strength coaches and performance specialists, they will sometimes uh, let's say speak in such a way or do, do a certain thing that maybe isn't necessarily under their umbrella or license to do so. And also vice versa. I, I believe that sometimes you'll fall upon a sports medicine or rehab professional who will kind of, you know, do something that's not in their realm or not under their license. What I would say is why not collaborate and work as a team? If you're the strength coach you're, you're, and you're the PT, Hey, let me train this athlete. Hey, great. Once they have an injury, I'll let you take care of him there, take care of that knee, but let's work in concert and collaborate as a team effort. So now we're essentially at a performance team and not we're operating in different silos. And so what it really taught me was the importance of collaboration from a professional uh, and integrity standpoint. I want to be able to work alongside my peers and my mates in the field, whether they're physio, chiro, uh, massage therapy, athletic trainer, and me as the coach, strength coach, I want to work alongside them the same way I would look, I would work alongside the sport coach from a load management or volume standpoint. Hey, like, hey, coach, they're practicing this much, playing that much, let's kind of dial back the volume and intensity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that can, that collaboration and team effort approach can be, you can use that in the private setting, the collegiate setting, the professional setting, and all different settings in healthcare and everything in our field. That to me is number one. Number two is I was able to view movement, like human movement in a different, in a different lens. So rather than, hey, let's load, 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 which you and I know how important loading and getting stronger is. I'm not, that is, that is the biggest hammer I'll ever want to swing. But I think there's a level of credence that we have to apply to 
rather than saying, okay, great. Does that, does that dumbbell goblet squat bother your knees? Oh, it does. Okay. You know what? Let's just scratch that and do something else. No, no, no. Let's have a conversation here. That dumbbell goblet squat bothers your knees. Okay, great. Let's put a box there. Let's decrease or provide a level of constraint, right? Let's decrease range of motion. Now go down. Does that bother you a little bit, but not as much? Okay, great. Let me put a, a pad on there. Maybe another application of decreased range of motion. How's that feel now? A little bit better. Okay, great. Let me add, let me put a mini band around your knees. All the mini band haters can yell at me, but I'm just speaking of an example here. Put put the mini band around your knees. Well, what's this for? Well, you're gonna get more glute activation, lateral hips, et cetera, et cetera. Let's take off some of that pissed offness of the knee. Let's try that now. Oh, that feels way better. Okay, great. It's a dimmer on the light switch. You're just slowly pressing in one direction. You're not gonna jam it and switch all the way over to a different exercise. So to me, it gave me the tool of slow and control, almost like uh, slow cooking the training approach. A very, very subtle um, change approach versus these big drastic changes. So it gave me, in my opinion, knowledge in the little mix and cranny areas that I, I would say your typical strength coach uh, doesn't necessarily always think of. And by no means does this put me in a different position, but it, it forced me to think in a different way. And so when I see someone, you know, when I say human movement, I think bilateral squat, bilateral hip hinge, single leg derivatives, upper body, horizontal and vertical push pull, uh, anti-rotation, flexion, extension, carry, uh, locomotion, sprinting, et cetera, et cetera. And understand, okay, what are the different progressions we can target here? And that's why, as you can, on my Instagram channel, I like to post a series of progressions. Okay, here's a basic movement. Here's a, a, a bridge, a glute bridge, for example. And here are about five variations of how you can progress. And here's why each one is important so that you, you as the coach know how to progress. And then you as the, the client or the end user can take it and apply it on Monday. And so it's forced me to be a better collaborator with my teammates and also breaking down human movement in a very subtle and succinct way. I liked hearing, you know, you spoke to the basically functional progressions and being able to dissect different movements. And I think a lot of times we think of the foundational exercises that we rely on, squats, deadlifts, presses, pulls, uh, and they are what they are. But when you dive into it a little bit deeper, you really have an infinite number of exercises and it expands your toolbox when you can use functional progressions to increase, decrease range of motion, uh, just alter the movement to accommodate certain factors with a client or athlete. Uh, and it creates a very dynamic thought process toward training. Um, speak to you work in the private sector. What's the population that you work with primarily? And um, how do you how do you guys approach training with the different groups? Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say there, that's a great question. I think there are three buckets that we see on a day-to-day -day basis is the first bucket we see is your, your typical younger athlete. Let's call them the athletic development bucket, your teenager, middle school, high school, collegiate level athlete, anywhere between the age of, let's say 12 to 24, that athlete, you could throw them off a wall, they'll land without getting hurt. So the, the risk level is much lower with that type of athlete. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's a generalization. I'm not, you know, obviously injuries occur. The second bucket I would call just your typical general population client, anywhere from 25 to 75 years old. And the biggest thing there that I think we, you know, it's important to, to kind of peel a layer back on is that we are loading the same exact movement patterns for all individuals in this gen pop group, ages 25 to 75. It just, the only difference is the, their, love, their current level of ability and skill set, 
whether or not they're dealing with some, some or one potential nagging injury or injuries and the level of intensity and load we're adding there. Those are the variables that will change, but the, the movement patterns aren't going to change. I might load, uh, you know, Claire, who's 77 years old, up with a cable pull through at 25 pounds, and then I may, I may load up uh, Charles, who's a 25, you know, just graduated college, and his master's degree wants to do trap bar deadlifts. They're both hip hinges, but they're loaded differently, different intensity, different skill set, different ability level, and potential nagging injuries we're kind of trying to train intelligently around. The final bucket is I'll call them the endurance bucket. So this population, they're technically gen pop, let's say ages 40 to 60, but they are high level competitors in endurance sports. So marathons, ultras, uh, triathlons, biathlons, you have uh, uh, Ironmans, you have Kona, you have all of these high level endurance events where they're really just kind of just dumping out their endurance buckets. And you and I both know it becomes an easy sell to them. Hey, like, you also need to load and get strong and that durability and that uh, injury resilience will definitely help you with all that loading you're doing with uh, endurance. So those are the three buckets and we attack it from the same angle with all of them, meaning that you're going to see the same movement patterns in all of them. However, you may see more in our endurance population. And this kind of goes back to that deceleration presentation. There's a lot of good literature on, you know, stuff that's going to load their lower body areas that, are often prone to overuse injuries. If I'm gonna go run 12 miles, I gotta think of my calf, my ankle, my hamstring, my quad, my knee, my hip flexor. And that's just one example, but simple ways to target that where most strength conditioning training programs traditionally don't directly target. Let's say, let me do some heel raises, seated, seated and standing, let me load those. Let me do some hip flexor strengthening. Let me do some hamstring and maybe some Nordics come into play. Let me do some groin or adductor, maybe some Copenhagen's come into play. And those type of things. So that's kind of how we uh, attack it. And we have our templates in our outlines, but it's, it's always an individualized approach. Let's go back a few weeks. Uh, and I've heard you speak on this topic a few different times. Uh, deceleration, landing skills, force absorption. Um, really great presentation at Coaches Conference. And a lot of coaches uh, have reached out and and just praised uh, your approach to that. And I know you've uh, done it at some state clinics uh, for the NSCA as well and at some, uh, some other events. Um, speak to that topic. Why is that an important consideration for coaches in the field? You open up your phone, you go to Instagram, right? You're scrolling, you're scrolling, you're scrolling. Some of the biggest topics on Instagram and social media, hey, we can't ignore it. It's one of the biggest platforms that we all go to right in our field and the food the fitness industry the music industry fashion right so what do you often see or what does a young coach often see when they're scrolling oh this guy just did a a, a bajillion you know a 78 inch box jump and oh my god he just you know you just and you look at it and you say why would i want someone landing in such an awkward position where they can't even produce power right and so you see stuff like this all the time right these these sexy or force production exercises, you know, like, oh, wow, like, look at that. Look at this jump. Look at that power explosiveness. And you see Adrian Peterson highlights, you see all these phenomenal athletes. And one thing that I think often is remiss is you're not realizing as you as the end user looking at the screen and saying, they've already developed the brakes. They've already developed an ability to slow down, absorb force, absorb contact, take it and go in a different direction. You know, I had the picture of Jerome Bettis on the, uh, the force absorption slide and you know, we all know Jerome Bettis. He was great. His nickname was the bus because he, he went in one direction, went forward. He was linear. He didn't go side to side. He had a great ability to take the contact of the linebacker, the lineman, the defenseman, 
shake that, uh, you know, take that force, that, that contact, absorb it, and then continue moving forward. And that's just an example that you probably don't think about when we think of absorption from the lower body, think of the upper body as well. So to me, I think it's an area that gets kind of, you know, you flip past the page too quickly. You don't really take, you don't really glean into or lean into all the specific items. And I think it's even more important because you look at a lot of, a lot of the lower body injuries that occur from a soft tissue or overuse standpoint, not necessarily, um, you know, like a non-contact ACL. I'm talking about like, oh, my, my, my calf feels a little tight today. It's a little bit like strained or oh, I kind of pulled my hammy, like maybe a grade one, uh, just a muscle strain. I truly believe that, again, we cannot prevent these injuries, but we can do a really good job at properly physically preparing our athletes through the right demands and, and tasks and skill, skill acquisition in the weight room if we load them appropriately to be able to withstand those rigors and demands of sport and those stressors. And so a lot of these kind of soft tissue or lower body injuries, you think hip, flex, hip flexor region, knee region, calf region, groin region, um, and hamstring region, you can do a really good job of combating some of those uh, highly injurious areas if you just load appropriately. Yes, let's squat, let's deadlift, let's single leg squat, let's single leg RDL, let's you know, push, let's press, let's do all those things. I'm not saying remove those things. Let's also add in the force production stuff. That's great. Plyometrics, you know, jumping, power, uh, force production, uh, rate of force development. But I do believe we cannot forget about the deceleration of force absorption drills, which I believe go in the plyometric department right before the actual force production. So I believe if you're conducting business on day one, Phase one, let's hit up as, as many deceleration and force absorption and landing quality skills as we can. First order of business. Second order of business, once we've uh, developed those skills and qualities in concert with some of those direct loading schemes of those five lower body areas, let's then add in some of the actual force production, jumping and acceleration drills. It's like, you know, you go back to Mendoza in Mighty Ducks and I know I had this slide up. I wish it was better quality. I put, I, next time, maybe I'll play the video. It, Mendoza was exceptionally fast. He was the quickest guy on the ice. There was no doubt about that. But his biggest downfall is he couldn't slow down. And, you know, look at cars. Like, what good is a car that is really fast if you don't have brakes to stop it? You get into a car accident. And so I think, to me, like, I look at it like, oh, this, this makes sense. This is a good concept. And I know there's a good amount of literature on, you know, direct loading schemes or, or they allude to you know, snap downs or like, you know, drop squats, it's all the same stuff and, or, or landing, they could, you know, talk about jump landing, but they never, there's not a lot of focus on just actual force absorption and landing. So I think that is an area that we all know it's important, but I think we forget that, Hey, like it's part of force production. I'm sorry. It's part of plyometrics that you, you kind of have to do that. You need, you need to be able to land if you're going to jump. Yeah. Um, and it, it, Makes me think we talked about the dissecting movement and functional progressions. And this is an area that is often gray because it gets overlooked, like you mentioned. Uh, how do you screen deceleration and force absorption abilities in your athletes effectively? I think this is an area where, you know, if, uh, if we're trying to put a program in place and there, uh, and we don't have a great way to evaluate and screen something. It makes us question whether we should be putting it into a program or how much time we should be spending because it's not something that we can, uh, relate back to our athletes or really, uh, quantify, uh, 
the the value of. Um, how do you evaluate uh, force absorption, landing skills, and these topics that you like discussing? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great point. You have to, you know, what's the ROI? What's, why am I doing this? If there's, if there's no validity or reliability, then why am I doing it? So it's a great question. So the first thing I talk about, or I would mention is when you bring an athlete in for an assessment, at one point or another, you're going to talk about, hey, like, what's your injury history like? And what, you know, what type of injuries have you had? Uh, and those type of things. So <clears throat> more often than not, they're going to allude to the fact that, hey, you know, uh, you know, maybe I, I, I strained my calf back in college, you know, I'm, I'm 35 years old now, or I'm kind of currently dealing with the, you know, my right knee's a little bit strained, not feeling too good, or some of those injury things. So when they, number one is when they bring up injuries that have occurred or are currently occurring, you can always say, hey, look, like, here's a great way to reduce the chance of injury and improve your ability to perform at a high level at whichever goals you want to achieve. The second way to address it is from an actual, like, physical testing standpoint, you know, everyone at some point in their assessment or screening process has someone do a body weight squat, whether it's a PVC overhead, whether it's a, a regular squat, like just doing a squat, it might even be lightly loaded with a small dumbbell. Let me just see you do a squat. And then you might say, okay, great. You know, you're, you're, you have an ability to squat. You have an ability to hinge. You have an ability to single leg balance through like a, maybe a one leg RDL or a one leg airplane, or just a one leg, you know, just a standing, a standing balance test, uh, maybe a toe touch. And then, okay, you're assessing their ability to balance and stabilize on, on two legs and one leg just via different movement archetypes. Then you might talk about, okay, great. You know, if you've cleared and screened for no, I, I would call ankle related injury, it could be Achilles, could be calf, could be plantar fascia, could be foot, and nothing up the region in the knee or the hip currently, nothing that's major. I would say, great, like, let's show me, just lift up your heel, you lift up your heels, reach to the ceiling and then drop down quickly. How's that feel? Okay, great. Try it a couple of times. So you're just kind of walking around, you know, the 360 degree coach, make sure you're walking, walking around, walking from all angles, seeing different movements. And I want to, I want to make sure that I'm being clear is we all, we want to look and assess and coach and see for movement limitations. We don't want to overcoach or overcorrect or inundate our athletes with all these extraneous cues because you and I both know, and this is back to some of Nick Winkleman's work is, and a lot of the research is if it's a novice client, they don't do well when you just kind of spew stuff at them and you keep it, you know, nice and clean and just watch them take in movement and then give them a little bit of feedback at the end. And external cueing is so much more important than internal cueing, you know, drop down quick and land. Not like bring your heels down from your gastroc and bring your, you know, the, the digitorum, like they're not going to pick that up. Just so much you got relatability is big as well from a, from a uh, trust and buy-in standpoint. Some of the stuff that Brett Bartholomew talks about in conscious coaching is, you know, you want to relate to the athlete, build buy-in. Something you could do really easily is, you know, we had an athlete come in. He's in his uh, second phase now when he's dealing with some ankle stuff, but he wants to get back to plyometrics. All right, all right, perfect. There's a red flag. I'm not going to give him decel right away or even XL or plyos. Let's work on all the strengthening, direct loading, single leg balance work. So at least we're getting strength and tolerance of tissue and loading. Then we'll pepper in once, hey, how's that feeling? Oh, the ankle's fine now. The Achilles is not tender anymore. We're good to go. I'm running again. It's cool. You're running again. Great. How, how, how long are your runs? Oh, I do twice a week, three miles. Running is a plyometric. People forget that. Running is plyometrics at a very, very low level, but it's a plyometrics. The same way jump rope is plyometrics. Again, at a very, very, very low amplitude, but it still is plyometrics. I think people, from, people when they think plyos, uh, Eric, they're thinking, oh, wow, like, let me do a box jump. 
what about just jump and land like with two, like like pogos let's do a pogo jump that, that's plyos you have to you have to crawl before you sprint right so people forget about the crawling the walking before we actually sprint from an analogy standpoint so uh now that young man is you know second phase now now it now we add it in drop squat drop squat the stick maybe a little bit of a hiding or lateral skater hop we did a, we're still doing calf strengthening single leg bilateral we're still doing all the squats deadlifts hip hinges single leg stuff upper body push pull and core sled work right that's another way to load that achilles and and, that, and those tendons so there's a multitude of ways to do it but i think if i would just bring it into the fold assess and screen as a coach make it relatable and slow cook your training approach and it's just like any other skill like how do i how do i help this athlete if Eric comes to me and says, Hey man, I want to build a 315 pound back squat. Well, what do you, what do you squat now? Eric? Oh, I hit 135. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying as an example, <laughs> there's a step-by-step process to get there. We need to check off the boxes from a skills acquisition and task achievement standpoint, right? Lo and behold, three or four months down the line, Eric hit his 315 pound back squat. Awesome, man. And you know, I, I heard a very holistic take on that. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you spoke to screening for injury history and looking for movement limitations. And I think that is a, that's a great message. We should all be striving for quality movement in every training session. You know, if, if your clients, athletes aren't repeating quality movement in training sessions, uh, pretty much every time they go into the gym, there's going to be some failures. There's going to be some setbacks. There's going to be things they don't do well. How do you get them back towards quality movement? And that speaks to the process of finding where an athlete is at uh, with regard to deceleration, landing skills, where along the functional progression they need to uh, they need to start. And um, I think it really uh, speaks to that general. Uh, it speaks to that youth population, you know, from a long-term athlete development standpoint. Uh, building the brakes early on in an athletic career can can pay dividends forward for throughout the athlete's entire life. Um, it's a different process when you're working with general pop or adult athletes um, that, that haven't had the same foundation. Mm -hmm. And one thing from your presentation that came up a few times, you, you know, it, I think when we talk deceleration, force absorption, it relates well to eccentric training or eccentric loading. Um, speak to eccentric training and how much you implement that with your clients and athletes. And, uh, how do you apply eccentric training, uh, you know, just generally across the spectrum of strength and conditioning? Great point. Great question. I think a lot of the strength coach field, we, we all know about, you know, Jim Wendler, five, three, one, all these big names and, you know, Cal Dietz, the triphasic and ISOs, eccentrics, concentric. And, and so, what we do from a, an eccentric standpoint is I want to make sure that you can use pristine movement quality while loading, you know, technically in each of your reps. I'm not looking for perfection because we're not going to overcoach, but I'm looking for, Hey, look, let, 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 does that pass the eye test? And if I notice there's multiple ways to look at this, you have a client who has a high state of anxiety, arousal, uncomfort, discomfort. Oh my God, I'm in the gym. This is, this is like outer space for me. They're like shrugged up that you can tell they're not comfortable. 
and they're, they're, they're going fast. They're squatting. They're, you know, their pace is so high, really high arousal anxiety at level. You as a coach need to pick up on this, right? Social awareness, emotional intelligence, or emotion, uh, emotional quotient, if you will, be able to pick up on that. And if you have a client who just kind of rapidly speeds through exercises, how, how many times can you say, hey, slow down, hey, slow down, hey, slow down? They're not going to listen. They're, or at least they're, it's going in one out the other because they're so focused on just trying to be comfortable. So that's a, that's a gem pop, which I think a lot of coaches deal with or work with that don't know how to, uh, you know, properly address this area. Let me add in a three SECC. Or let me add in a five SECC or five second eccentric. And so it forces you to slow down. Hey, look, you got to do your homework. That's what the homework says. You got to do, do it. You got to, you know, dot your eyes, cross your T's. Now, if I give you a three second eccentric, I know you're only going to do one second eccentric. If I, you know, if I give you a penny, you're going to ask for a dollar. So what I try to do is sneakily, if this pisses off the client, but helps them, I'm okay with it. And I say it in a joking manner. Oh, I got to slow down. What the heck? You know, like, so if I, if I really want to force you to really slow things down, I'll give you an example. Let's do a, uh, you know, a kettlebell, a, a trap bar deadlift, right? A trap bar deadlift on blocks or elevated to, you know, two of those DC blocks or four inches off the ground. Hey, Joe, I want you to do three by five with a three second eccentric, right? Interspersed with a, it's, it's in a, you know, a block. Let's do a, a, a cable standing pallet press in between. Okay, great. I know it's the first set, you know, he picks it up and kind of puts it down. I'm, I'm like, okay, like I'm not going to overcoach. Let me just kind of sit back and let him do the whole set when he's done. Hey, Hey Joe, I want you to take three full seconds. I'm going to count them out for you as you lower that weight. Cause are you feeling it right now? No, I don't feel it anywhere. Okay, great. Let's do it again. Yep. Get it. Get three seconds, five reps. Where do you feel it? Oh, my, my low back, my mid back, my lats, my hamstrings, my glutes. Oh, now I get it. Boom. There you go. That's one easy way to do it where Joe obliges. The other reasons why we add uh, eccentrics in is because I want you to be able to control the lowering or de the, the, you know, the lowering of the eccentric phase because it's so important. And we know oftentimes when we're in that eccentric phase, that is when the muscle or the muscular tendinous unit is most prone to becoming injured. It's in its most lengthened state. It's almost vulnerable in a sense. So you think of an athlete who's overstriding, kind of that story I talked about at the beginning of my presentation, that young high school athlete who overstrides, she's sprinting up the soccer field and she overstrides, reaches too much. She's in a lengthened hamstring state, uh, pulls up short, strains a hammy, now she's on the ground. And so when your muscles or tendons or, or the body areas are in that lengthened state during that eccentric phase, where, where you want to be really strong there. That's the key. We want to be strong in all <clears throat> different you know, contractions, whether it's concentric, isometric, or eccentric. So we'll add in all three, but eccentric is the one that I think has the most credence in terms of forcing someone to develop skill acquisition from a you know, motor control standpoint, but also movement quality standpoint. And once you have great movement quality and you've acquired the skills necessary to load, then we can load for days. If your technique is flawless, let's keep loading. I'm not going to hold you back if your technique looks good. If your technique looks subpar, I'm going to slow you down and lower the weight. That's another way to do it. A uh, kid comes in and says, hey, give me the heaviest dumbbell you got. You all know this young, this young athlete. He's the, you know, he's, the, he's the quarterback of the football team. He's head honcho on campus. He's big man on campus. Okay. Okay. Larry, like we have, we have a hundo hit that for 20 or something like that. Right. Like, and then, you know, he does it really quick and he's just bouncing out of the hole, bouncing out of the hole, butt winking, all these type of things. Okay. Let's, let's take a, let's take a, let's take a 70 pound one. Larry. I want to do this 10 times. 
Let me do three second eccentric though. Oh, that cakewalk, let's do it. Does it and you notice you really can't control that bottom end range and he's butt winking. Butt winking is not the worst thing in the world. In an unloaded position via like a cat cow, butt wink for days, I want you to get some spinal hygiene and rotation and flexion extension. But under load, we have to appreciate what these different, um, you know, these orthokinematics happen at the joints. Is that going to be safe from a loading standpoint? I'm not so sure. I'd rather you control your pelvis tucked underneath and control your femurs to be able to sit into your, your greatest depth, keep a neutral or stiff spine or, or torso, come back up out of the hole versus come down really fast and not controlling it. So I would say it gives the athlete the skill to control their movement, to you can you know help them develop better technique and also allows you to kind of appraise their movement quality and see areas where, oh, we need to work on that. Because when things are really slow, you can see things. When they're fast, it's hard to see as a coach. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, just as you spoke to, you know, running is a plyometric movement and plyometric movements are applied across, you know, many movements that we, we take on as athletes and humans, there's an eccentric component to almost every exercise. And so when we're adding a focus on eccentric training, there's also that inherent eccentric focus of the exercise itself. And so we have to be aware and screen uh, sort of both sides of that. So I thought that was really interesting how you, how you approach that. Um, I want to ask you about uh, strength and conditioning careers in the private sector. I'd mm-hmm. say this has been an emerging space. And I think many coaches, we know uh, a lot of very successful entrepreneurs in the strength and conditioning space working in the private sector, but it is untraditional from the, I'm going to get my degree, get my CSCS and be, go into a GA position, assistant strength coach, work your way up. Um, you've never really gone down that that what I call traditional strength and conditioning path, speak to the career path of working successfully in the private sector um, within strength and conditioning. I would say number one, be really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that um, not to say that one route is better or easier or harder or worse than the other. I think that, you know, you have to, you have to go where you feel you can be the most impactful and, you know, many a time that I have, I thought back to, oh, shucks, man, I wish I would have actually went back. Like there's a local uh, program that does a phenomenal job with a master's degree, GA. It's a one-year master's program. Uh, Coach Mike Kamal, who's a former Boyles guy like myself, uh, he is the director at Merrimack College. And they do an excellent, excellent job at a master's degree program, exercise in sports science, uh, they, yeah, you know, GA position, stuff like that. You know, shout out to a good friend of mine, Jeff Stern, who's in the program, and, and theirs is awesome. You, you finish your undergraduate degree, you get right into their master's, you get hands-on experience as a strength coach, as a GA, and then you get your master's in one year, and then you're good. And I know several friends of mine and colleagues that have gone through that, and they've gone on to do, have great careers. And so I definitely praise someone doing that. For me, in my role and what I've done in my twelve now 12-year career, I've done a lot of kind of jumping around through different hoops and seeing what works, what doesn't work, and... The, the most important thing I believe is making sure that you can apply your full skill set in any aspect or any realm that you're working in. So I knew at the time I was working in PT clinics, I was trying to help them out from a training standpoint while also learning some of the human movement stuff. And then in, in the coaching uh, department and coaching realms and 
um, you know, jobs I've had, I've always wanted to say, okay, great. And when there are sports medicine staff on, you know, people on staff, I've always tried to work as kind of the middleman to say, hey, look, I'm coaching this athlete. I know you're treating this athlete. Uh, is there a way we can collaborate and work together to help them get to their you know, desired goal or goals? And so I think, number one, always provide value. Number two, always seek to learn and understand. And number three, never be closed-minded to new thoughts. And that's kind of a, those three is a, is a way I, I would kind of sum it up. The fourth one would just to be, would be to just be kind. And I think that's something you, you know, people will gloss over. Oh yeah, I'm always nice. And like literally just be kind because you put good out into the world, good comes back to you. And so you want to be able to help people get to their desired goals and you have to do it in a nice and courteous way. And so, um, you know, I think the other thing I would add in, in the private sector is, you know, as a strength coach, you kind of have to know what you're getting into when you get into it and knowing that, okay. And something I think most people don't talk about. I know Brett talked about this a lot is the financial aspect, the financial component. And so for me, I know that being a strength coach is not the most lucrative career. I think this is not a secret. I think anyone who's in the field knows this, but I will say it gives you the ability to then say, okay, how do I use my skill set while keeping integrity to the place that I'm currently working at 100% professionalism and, and respect that is important. How do I also do things on the side that can garner some other financial avenues for me in a respectful manner? So I've been fortunate enough to have performed, I'm sorry, conducted workshops around the entire United States in, in uh, over in Italy, the NSCA CEU accredited courses and workshops, I've done some of that. I've done just other professional, like individual speaking engagements with NSCA and um, other uh, governing bodies and what have you. And um, you know, podcasts, stuff like that, online training on my own uh, blogs, articles, uh, you know, some online, uh, other online virtual platforms and stuff like that. And so being open to building other skill sets that can allow you to use your skills that you all, you already do, but also respect the place that you're at. That's important. So kind of your own entrepreneurial side gig, if you will. And what's the, the full, I guess, full-time sustainability type job as well. So I think that we can't be closed-minded to stuff like social media or LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And I know a lot of coaches will say, oh, you know, I don't need that stuff. It's not important. And I would argue, well, like, it may not feel important to you now, but at some point it would be nice to get your message out if you believe, if you believe in your message out to people around the world. Because if your message is that good and you care about it that much and you want to educate and give back, there's a, there's a free platform to do it. And here it is. It's called Instagram or here it is it's called LinkedIn or Facebook or NSA coaching podcast. So um, I would say be open-minded to the entrepreneurial side gigs. I, I like that message. And, and, you know, I think a lot of times we think, Oh, private sector strength and conditioning, I'd have to start a business. And if that's not your personality or skill set, it might be a little intimidating, but it could be part-time. It could be, uh, you know, running boot camps or, or Metcon sessions at public parks. And we've seen so many different models of that um, in various parts of the country, running camps, uh, educating, you know, and just being a strength and conditioning educator in the private sector. And all those things tie into private sector strength and conditioning. And I think it's really interesting hearing more about the the business side. We've had Brett on the podcast a couple of times and he, he speaks to that very very clearly. And I, it's something when I have private sector coaches on, I, I like to ask questions about necessary business skills, because that is something that you're not going to get at 
an ERP school, for example, or a strength and conditioning program. What's something on the business side that you've learned uh, over your years working in the private sector that maybe you didn't anticipate or expect to be sort of the, the truth of your situation? I would definitely say that I am no expert or not. I'm, I'm less than what a rookie is from the business side, but I will say this. Number one, customer service is number one, meaning we're in the service-based industry. I think the young up-and-coming strength coach says, oh, I'm going to write these awesome uh, training templates, this 12-month program. I got this these phenomenal high-level athletes. Boom, here you go. Do it. Well, it doesn't always work that way. It's not always that easy. It's you're in a service-based industry. You have to understand the skill set that is related to customer service. You know, hi Eric, how's it going today? How you know how, how was your weekend? Hope everyone in your family's doing well. Let's jump into that session. Let's open up that iPad and I'll get my iPad and because you know now it's everything's on an iPad or an iPhone. And let's get up your true coach or whatever platform you're using for training online and let's pop up your workout. Let me know if you have any questions. Simple customers, simple people skills, right? The soft skills, which we all inherently have, but we don't always use. So customer service is number one. If you want to be able to be a part of a business, be a part of running a business or run a business, anything with being a part of running a business, you have to have customer service skills. If you don't, that's fine. Sit in, sit, stay in the office, have someone else out there that does. <laughs> that's key. Um, if, you're, if you're working with gen pop clients, end users, athletes, you have to be able to speak their language and build buy-in and trust. And you do that via just basic customer service skills. Does that mean, hey, hopping on a call, taking an email, you know, past hours? Yeah, that's just part of the gig. Um, so that's number one. Number two is you don't necessarily have to peel all of the layers of the onion back for you know, understanding uh, you know, P&L and all these you know, checks and balances and finances, like, but at least understand what is, how much you're making. Like if, that, if, that, if you're a part ownership, you need to know how much is being made from what different avenues are being, being made from and in maybe some areas that you could build out the business a little bit more to make more income because at the end of the day, it is a business. You have to stay afloat, especially during these trying times. And so you have to test out uh, different services that you believe in and that you can still have the integrity of the brand at the forefront. And so I would say, you know, customer service, number one, number two is no, at least one or two layers of the business side, the financial side. And if you're not an expert in that, totally cool. Hire someone who is. So have an accountant, have a financial advisor, have someone who is the, for lack of a better term, the money guy or girl. And so that you're, that department is being fed properly because if you're coaching and doing an A plus job, but you're also being in charge of the business or finance side, I don't know if that's going to go well. If you look at some of the best uh, training facilities in the world, and there are so many of them, you know, Exos, Mark Verstegen has someone, Boyles, Mike Boyle has someone, um, you know, his name is Bob Hanson, I remember from the internship, Cressy, Cressy has him, it's P2Pui, and this is just some examples, I'm sure Mike Robertson and IFAST, and, um, you know, those guys, they have someone, Bill Hartman, all those type of things, so, and there are many others, but the point being is, have someone who runs that department, know a little bit about it, and have excellent, excellent customer service skills. Regardless of the area of the field you're in, you know, we always are put in a situation to sell our programs or sell our philosophy or uh, sell our principles, you know, to the athletes we work with, to our front office, to our athletic administration. Uh, we serve others and we rely on communication skills. These are universal in this field, whether you work uh, at an academic institution, a professional sports team, or in the private sector. So I, I really liked uh, 
your point to being versatile, using your uh, learning to use your full skill set in every realm and in every area that you're working in. And that really speaks to the current state of the field of we need to be versatile professionals. We need to be dynamic as strength coaches from the athletes that are coming in the door to uh, the situations we might find ourselves in professionally. And we need to step up and, and uh, continue to adjust and, and make the most of our situation. So I really enjoyed um, talking with you today and that message. What's the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you? Well, number one, I, I enjoy being on. So thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, in terms of contacting me, I think the easiest thing is my Instagram account. And I'm on there quite frequently. I know, you know, Eric, you and I have, have, have kind of gone back and forth a little bit on there, but I'm on there every day. And so if you, uh, you know, shoot me a direct message, contact me there, I you know then we can kind of transfer over to a phone call or an email. But I mean, this when I say this, and I know a lot of people will say this at the end of a podcast episode, oh, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to you. And they may be very genuine. I'm not saying they aren't, but I literally mean it. <clears throat> I want to be reached out to. I'm happy to pay it forward and give it back. I have been helped by far too many people in this field that I have. I don't have enough fingers or, or toes to be able to count. And so if there's anything I can do to give back and pay it forward in the field of strength, I am more than happy to do so. So at my Instagram, so it's Matthew Ibrahim underscore some other guy's my name, evidently. So I had to put an underscore, but uh, direct direct message there or reach out there. And I'm happy to, you know, hop on a phone call or shoot an email and we can go back and forth. But uh, I thank you so much, Eric, for having me on. It's It's been a, a fun uh, chat here and, and then I'm appreciative of the opportunity. Awesome. Matt Ibrahim, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for being on today. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And also thank you to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community. So follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to nsca.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.